G'day, I'm Mitch Steely. I'm the host of the Kinetic Collective podcast, powered by Play. Today's guest is Mike Buley. Mike has over 22 years of coaching at the Division I level at college athletics. His career has included stints at Georgia Southern University, the University of Dayton, Georgia Tech, and finally Clemson University. Coach Buley has recently stepped down as his role as the Director of Basketball Strength and Conditioning and has joined Play as their Director of Performance and Education. So come with me as we learn a little bit more about Coach Buley. So to start off with Mike, who is Mike Buley and what is the Mike Buley story? <laughs> uh, well, uh, I don't know if there's much story to tell, but uh, I, uh, I'm currently the Director of Performance and Education for Play. And uh, just uh, this month, in fact, this will be my year anniversary with, uh, with play. And uh, prior to that, I spent 22 years as a Division I collegiate strength conditioning coach. And so I started way back in 96. I didn't even know strength conditioning was, a, was an option. Uh, I didn't even know that was a career potential. So I was uh, fortunate enough in 96, uh, University of Kentucky fired their head football coach, Bill Curry. And uh, that dispersed a lot of minions across the country, one of which landed at a Telford YMCA, where I was, quote unquote, doing sports training. Or so I thought, uh, because I had the Arnold Schwarzenegger Encyclopedia of Bodybuilding, which uh, has all the answers and uh, great pictures. And uh, that's what uh, we should all aspire to in terms of athletic performance. Right. So absolutely. Uh, so the fitness director that was hired there was a former strength conditioning coach and had kind of decided to exit the profession and, and, and choose one that's a little bit more stable. His wife was pregnant and he kind of took a liking to me and my, my likeness to the weight room and, and obviously my, my quest for, uh, for performance and, and helping others and all that stuff. So, you know, it took me under his wing and, and began to shoot, reveal to me this world of strength conditioning. And shortly thereafterwards, I guess maybe about a year after that, his former uh, boss contacted him and said, hey, look, I need you at University of Nevada, Reno. And uh, he said, listen, I'm, I'm done with that part of my, uh, my professional journey, but I got this young kid, which was me. And he said, I think you'd be great in that role. So I series of interviews and a lot of time that spanned between that. In fact, I actually had went ahead and, and gotten a job at a private sports conditioning studio uh, sometime uh, prior to even actually being officially offered that job. So in 96, it turned down a $40 an hour job, which is pretty good back then to go and, and be a part of this and, and fell in love with it. And so amidst all those travels, uh, started out, got my master's at, at University of Nevada. And then that uh, led to me four years later getting my first job at Georgia Southern University, and I uh, thought I was going to be a football guy, but basketball kept uh, kept uh, presenting itself as a as an option, and uh, had the opportunity to take a job or an interview, excuse me, at the University of Dayton, which I thought was going to be a great opportunity to sharpen my bas my football interview skills, and <laughs> fell in love with Coach uh, Gregory and the University of Dayton and the opportunity to. Uh, as he said, I want a football strength coach in my basketball weight room. So with all of that, had great found success there for six years, found my wife there. And uh, that luckily uh, 
allowed me to advance my career and move from the A-10, which had no, which is I still think is one of the best basketball conferences in the country, but didn't have a didn't have a TV contract to the ACC. Uh, got to Georgia Tech, rebuilt a program there, and then uh, was fortunate enough to uh, beat the Clemson Tigers enough for Coach Brownell to call me up and say, you want to be a Tiger? I said, sure, to get out of this Atlanta traffic, you bet. And, uh, and uh, came to Clemson and had great success here. In fact, we got a sweet 16, only the fourth in school history and won Olympic gold at the university world games. And, uh, uh, but, uh, when I made that move, my wife was eight months pregnant from Georgia tech to uh, Clemson. And, you know, when you have kids, it really radically changes your perspective on life. And it started to become very important for me and my family to make certain that my kids called me dad instead of somebody else's kids call me coach. Do you think and that comes from the background of you? I know you had, um, you grew up in a family of 10 siblings. Is that correct? Uh, well, no, I didn't have 10. My, my parents didn't have, my mom was one of 10 siblings. Ah, and, right. uh, but let me tell you, man, I was raised by a village. And uh, so. That's a lot of uncles and aunties. Yeah, it really is. Christmas. I mean, it was a minimum, you know, of, of, 50 to 60 plus cousins and aunts and uncles. And it was, it's some of my, you know, Christmas is one of my favorite times of the year because you got to see everybody again. And it's just, you just kind of picked up where you left off and it was fun. And uh, yeah, so yeah, you know, and, and Clemson was great. I mean, it was just the, it was everything that I had, had aspired towards in my, in my career. But as we well know, as a strength coach, you lead from a position of anonymity, which is fine. But your ability to retain your employment is predicated on the win-loss column. And I have Absolutely. very little to do with that. Uh, I help a, a, a slither of that. But at the end of the day, um, my involvement in that is, is somewhat limited. And uh, so uh, we decided to uh, stake a claim and, and exit out and, and do this thing with play. Ron McKeefrey obviously was in my role before. Ron and I were friends. And when Ron was exiting uh, and getting back into coaching because his kids had left, uh, he asked me if I wanted to resume uh, where he left off and advance what he had started. So really honored uh, and humbled that Ron thought of me in, in that regard to do that. And uh, yeah, man, so it's been one hell of a ride here so far with uh, Play Academy. And do you think when you said you first met your mentor that made that same decision to, to to walk away from the college sport and take up the family, that's had an impact on you that way that, you know, that first mentor that you had pretty much did the same thing and you followed in his footsteps all the way through it? Yeah, you know, at the time it, it probably didn't. But, you know, as I began to, you know, just get older and again, that whole thing, once you have a you, you heard about guys, and even I had conversations with Ron before even I had my own family. You know, it's my wife at the time was an athletic trainer, so we were together for uh, – we were married for five years before we even started having kids. So, I mean, we understood athletic life. It was like, you know, you, you maybe caught each other in the morning and <laughs> you went out and did your thing, and, you know, and then the, in the weekends you got together. And, and it was great. We, we, had, we enjoyed that, but when you – you bring other kids into that. I just didn't want to be in a situation where I was going to be pulling my kids out of where they had maybe made their friends and called home. And, um, and quite honestly, my parents are getting to an age where travel 
is starting to get to a point where that is limited. Their ability to travel is takes a toll on the body, you know, when you're, yeah. when you're 65 plus and uh, they're still in great health and great shape, but you know, maybe I was able to ex- extend my career, but in strength condition, you got to kind of go where the job uh, is available sometimes and it has to be the right job. But, and, and I didn't want to be put in a situation too, where I was pulling my family away from uh, their experience to be able to be with their grandparents and make sure that was a part of their life. So, yeah. You can see that family obviously plays a massive impact on what you're doing, even just talking to you now. So yeah, how, how was your childhood growing up? What was what uh, sports it was you great. as a kid? Yeah, I tell you what, uh, it was it was fantastic. Um, I, growing up, my dad has probably had the biggest influence on me getting into strength conditioning, you know, uh, before anybody had home gyms. Uh, my dad had one in his basement, and uh, and uh, he was a very – very, very good baseball player. And uh, unfortunately, none of his sons, I have three brothers, uh, or two brothers, I'm, we hated baseball. It just wasn't fast enough. If you could just hit and run the whole time, it would have been great, right? And uh, But uh, he, he taught me the value of developing your body, taking care of your body in an effort to appropriate some level of performance outcome. And uh, so... Yeah. And, and so that was, even in high school, uh, my dad was in construction. So he was gone in the morning and, and when he got home at night, he was exhausted. So there, my dad never made it to a sporting event. He was never, he never got to see any of those. My mom did, but my dad never did. Yeah. Rarely. Probably counting my hands how many times my dad made it to those. So, so for me to have a relationship, even with my dad, I would get up at 4.30 in the morning as a kid just to go in because my dad would get up in the morning and train and work out and then go work on a roof or a construction for, you know, 12, 14 hours a day. But he valued that. And uh, so it was my time to be with him and do that and just continue to, to develop that. And, and, you know, again, I, I had no idea that there was this whole world of performance training. I thought it was really, I thought my value was going to be limited in exclusively, you know, personal training or, you know, maybe corporate wellness. I, I just, yeah. you know, I played two years of, of college sports, uh, soccer and lacrosse. I wasn't going to be professional in either one of those. And we didn't have a strength conditioning coach. We didn't have a weight room. It was, you know, you just, you worked out at the local YMCA. That was, uh, that's where you train. So, so you believe that that life lesson that your dad gave you in regards to the, the, you know, the getting up, the training, the mentality before work is, is what set you up to be and influence your life as a coach. I think so. I I always tell people, I think my dad made me a man and my mother made me a gentleman. And, uh, you know, I, I think uh, there's a lot, there's a good way to blend those two because sometimes you can be too much of a man and not enough of a gentleman or vice versa. So, yeah, you know, my, my dad and taught me the value of hard work and putting a good hard day's work in and, and being satisfied with what you're doing. And, you know, I, I always thought my dad was going to force me to have to take over the family business. It was his father's. And so I can remember uh, saying, hey, dad, I got this summer job. He's like, good. I hope it doesn't interfere with you being on the roof. <laughs> and what I realized was he was trying to push me towards education saying, you yeah. don't, you don't need this life, son. You need, you have an opportunity. I broke my back so that you can go have a life to do these things. And my mother too. And, uh, and so my mother, uh, you know, really raised me from a standpoint of it never costs you anything to be polite to people and, uh, always try to give back and share, uh, the gifts that you have with other people. So, so I think I've kind of developed a little bit of that selflessness 
and coaching um, through my mother and, and doing those types of things. But my dad, you know, it was, you know, bust your ass, you work hard, you do the best job that you can. And at the end of the day, it, it, your success will take care of itself because people will recognize you through what you do. Absolutely. Absolutely. Now, where do you draw the line between helping people and showing them that how to help themselves as a coach? Yeah. Great question. You know, I, I would constantly get aspiring strength coaches as I began to uh, grow in my career, you know, what can I do or what are the things that I need to do to, uh, to be a strength conditioning coach? This is what I want to do. And so after having a lot of conversations, I said, you know what, I just need to create a series of resources and, 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 and a book so that we could really have a guided instruction and guided conversation around that. So that was one way that I, I would do that. And I, you know, I, I experienced people in this profession that thought because of the logo on their chest, you had to bow to them or that there was some, you know, there was some sort of uh, secret society. It, had to be yeah, yeah, like you had to yeah. genuflect at the altar here before we could even engage in conversation <laughs> like that. And I thought, man, that's such a, we're in such counter to what we try to instill in our athletes. At least I do. I mean, I always try to use the weight room as a, I wasn't going to teach you the X and the nose of the game, but I'm going to teach you the X's and nose of life. And I think the weight room is a great microcosm to that, especially, you know, especially dealing with basketball guys and gals and asking them, Hey, I want you to be a part. I'm going to put you in this environment that you're not very good at. You're not very familiar with, and you're going to be uncomfortable the whole time. So, uh, yeah, I, 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 I tried to, uh, to utilize that and, and in, in my teachings. And, and so when I had the opportunity to, when somebody wanted to ask me my opinion of something or, or what, I always try to make a strong effort to get back at to those people because I remember how hard it was to break into this profession. And I say that, granted, I got a graduate assistantship and I don't think that's terribly tough. I mean, you know, you we want to pay you for nothing to work for us. Yeah, come on. That's the easy part. It's, it's making that jump from being an intern to a graduate assistant. Like, how do you do that? And I, and I tell people all the time, they're like, well, I can't get a job. I'm like, well, how many have you applied for? Oh, like five or six jobs and stuff. I'm like, I applied for 20. I had 20 yeah. jobs before I even got my first interview. And I didn't even get that interview. You know, like it was, it's just a process that you have to go through and that, you know, and again, maybe those values that I learned as a kid is, you know, you just put your nose down, you work your ass off and, you know, things will work out. You just keep, keep doing the job that you're doing and uh, have an unquenchable work ethic. And gosh, you know, these days that's a, uh, that's a, that's a pretty much a, that's a, that's a good character. Uh, to have, character trait, right? So, and then I think that evolved too, for me uh, doing internships and uh, graduate assistantships. Once I got to Clemson, I kind of had this opportunity to be able to do that. I did it throughout my career, but uh, I wasn't the director at uh, Georgia Tech, uh, Scott McDonald was terrific, terrific coach, terrific person. But when I got back in that role, I kind of had my own staff that I was able to pour into and build those things and teach them. And uh, people always, I always ask our interns, I say, you know, what, what is the most important thing for you in this internship? And, you know, what, how can you bring the greatest value to me in this program? And it's always a stumper for them. And I say, never stop asking questions because if I can't articulate what we're doing and why we're doing it, then we got no business doing it because I have to take that same approach with my athletes too. You know, number one, meeting where you're at, 
defining what your aspirations are, where you want to go to, aligning or really demonstrating or signifying what are the behaviors that are going to get you there. And then allowing me to say, look, let's rely on my expertise to get you there. I can do that. And this is how we're going to do it. And, uh, and that's, that's kind of always been my approach with that. And, and the opportunity to help people in that way that, that it want to be in this great profession. Cause it is, it's incredible. Uh, yeah, I always try to try to make myself available to help them that way. And it also comes down to being able to explain what you're doing simply. If you can't explain it in simple language, then you don't understand. Yeah. That. Yeah. You know, if you can take something pretty complex and, and make it simple, you can move a mountain. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. What activity, what activities make Mike Bewley lose track of time? <laughs> wow. Well, my kids, uh, that's, that's for certain. Um, my wife, uh, you know, one of our favorite pastimes is to uh, get on the boat. We live right next to two beautiful lakes, Lake Hartwell, Lake Kiwi, and about 30 minutes from Lake Jocassee. So man, when the weekends come around and we are on the boat and, uh, you know, we're trying to figure out the best way to wear the kids out. And uh, we just, they just got old enough to where we can tube. So we've got them on that. And they just, they think that's the greatest thing in the world. My wife knows how to drive a boat. She grew up on a 1700 acre farm up in Ohio. So she's not, she's no stranger to, uh, machinery and equipment. And, uh, in fact, I taught her how to drive a boat when we was just her and sink uh, and I, and we were just married and it was just her and I. So yeah, man, that's what we do. And, uh, we are water rats. My parents live on a, they retired, they live on a lake up in Kentucky. So, uh, even when we go visit family, we're, we're near water. So oh, outstanding. Now yeah. your two daughters, Regan and Kennedy, do you want to explain yeah. the reasoning behind the names Regan and Kennedy? Yeah. So <laughs> I, uh, I named them after American presidents. So, and I think uh, uh, I, I kind of ran out of names is probably the reason why we stopped it too. Uh, all joking aside, no, but <laughs> yeah, that was uh, the reason, you know, so we got a Democrat and we got a Republican and uh, so we got a nice balanced house here, right? And, uh, <laughs> so, but yeah, I, I thought that was pretty neat. I'd heard uh, actually a former boss had done that uh, with his kids and I thought, man, that's pretty neat. And uh, I've always been... Uh, always had an interest, I guess, in politics, just because, you know, it, it, to me, it's directly tied to our liberties and what we have here as a country. And I think, uh, you know, it's, it's, I never served in the military, I almost went in 9-11, but I was still in mat, getting my master's and my mom and dad begged me, you know, like, please finish it up and then you can go. And then obviously career opportunities happen, but I've always tried to obviously get back to that, to that group for our men and women there that way. So, yeah. But uh, yeah, that's that's their their name after the the presidents of the United States. Beautiful, beautiful. Now, if you could have a billboard in the center of town with anything on it, what would it be? Probably would have a message on there that says, uh, "Safe makes you average. Courage makes you special." Safe makes average. Courage makes you special. Yeah, nice. Would that also be your favorite quote? Do you think you'd have another favorite quote? Ah, uh, man. Well, I will, uh, you can't see it on here, but this is, uh, my grandfather, my mother's father built a multi-million dollar international business in his basement. Yep. And he was, uh, it's incredibly resourceful that generation. What, I mean, they didn't have Google, you know, half the stuff I fix around this house is because of YouTube and, uh, you know, and phone calls to my dad and stepfather. So, this is uh, one of my favorite quotes, and it's one of the things I learned pretty early uh, from him and my family is the world wants results, not excuses. 
and yeah, uh, that absolutely. rests. Yeah. So uh, when he passed, when I was in the fifth grade, uh, I made sure I grabbed this and uh, put it on. Uh, it's been with me everywhere I've gone through my career, and it sits on my desk. Everybody always comes in and says, "I like that." And I said, "Yeah." And I think uh, a lot of people want to change the world, but uh, I think the first step to doing that is changing yourself and looking at yourself there. And uh, so, but uh, producing, not uh, not making excuses about it. Yep. Now you mentioned the internet there. If it, if you're in 150 years, science and the internet fail us, and all that's left is a book about your life. What's the title of the book? <laughs> oh gosh, I don't know. That's a great. Uh, <sighs> probably, I don't know, everything you need to know about it, uh, everything you need to know to avoid, right? Like, <laughs> I think, I, I, you know, it's a good question. I, I feel like, uh, you know, it's a conversation I would have oftentimes with coaches, sport coaches. I feel like, you know, I think it's okay for us to fail and understanding that fit within failures where we actually have growth, you know, and, uh, and without, without, you know, truth doesn't happen without, or growth doesn't happen without truth. And I, and I really believe that you know, if everything's great and everything's going your way, that's easy. You know, it's how do you respond to those adverse adversities, those failures. And, uh, so yeah, maybe, maybe, maybe the title of that is it everything you need to know. So you don't repeat it. You know, that's, I mean, uh-huh. in a lot of ways, that's why I got into coaching. I, I thought, damn, Man, if I'd have known this stuff when I was playing, what how would that have impacted my my career? And not that I would have gone on and made millions and been a professional athlete, but what I what I've been able to even further enhance the experience that I had. And and uh, so I always feel like when I'm doing coaching is, man, please don't follow down the same path or that I did. That let me show you there there's a there's a better way to leverage your athleticism and not rely on it. Beautiful. Well, you've given me the title and the blurb, so you've taken me second question out of it there. That's okay. Well answered. Well answered. Well yeah. done. All right. What's the most important thing you've learned in your life? Now, you've probably already answered that with what you've just showed me with the little um, world wants results, not excuses. But what would you say that would be? Yeah, I think um, I don't think it takes a trem- I don't. I'm not a smart guy by any stretch, uh, and I don't think the most successful people in the world are the smartest. I think they're the most persistent and they have this, uh, unquenchable desire to see a level of success and they're willing just to put their head down and make sure that they do it. And where I think a lot of people would give up or they become frustrated and move on to other things or they're distracted. Um, and that's easy to do, right? It's super easy. And, uh, I, I would, uh, yeah, I'd have to say that. What is your best mistake you've made in coaching? The best mistake? Somewhere where you've made an error, you've done a programming error, you thought, hey, let's try this program, it didn't work, and then what did you learn from that? Yeah, I think um, probably we put such a supreme value as coaches with cultivating relationships with our athletes with our, hopefully our athletic trainers, our medical staff. And I don't think we, or I did a good enough job developing a personal relationship with the sport coaches that I worked with. I think it was very systemic. And 
meaning it's here's the black and white. It's all about success. And it's, it's very, it's not intrinsic at all. There's no emotional attachments. Like here it is, this is it. And I discovered that once I start introducing technology into training and learning about heart rate and being able to have objective data that says, yes, you are in fact doing too much. And here's the objective data. And what I discovered was it, that information that I was presenting, while it was true and it was objective and it was valid, the relationship that I had with my sport co- coaches couldn't bear the weight of truth. And if I'd have had more of a relationship with them outside of work and, and fostered that and just took the basketball off the table and just said, Hey, look, man, let's, let's hang out and just, let's be buds, whatever. Let's do something outside of work. Um, I think that would happen. I mean, like, you know, if you and I are mates, we're out at a bar or whatever, maybe I've had too much to drink and you're like, Mick, you're like, Mike, Hey, listen, dude, calm down, man. Like you're, you need to, you need to, okay. But if somebody else told me that I don't have anything with them, probably going to bow up on them. We're going to go to blows. Right. You know? Uh, So along those same, uh, along that same vein, like, if I, as I was presenting this information and, and, and at the end of the day too, there, there's things that you bring to the table. It's like, if you can go to your head coach and be like, look, coach, I, I honestly don't think we're going down the right path. And you may leave that and be like, you know what? I'm wrong on that. But you have the relationship to bear that weight of truth for you to be able to openly be able to do that. And uh, I think that that is one of the biggest oversights I had in the beginning. And it made it very difficult for me to uh, blend some of the some of the things that I knew with the coach that off, ultimately all I was trying to do is what have everybody experience more wins. Yeah. It wasn't me telling you that you're not a good coach, you don't know what you're doing, but that's the way it came across because we didn't have that relationship, right? And uh, so that would uh, that was probably one of the biggest mistakes that I made in the bit in the beginning. Um, yeah. No, good, good, good answer. And do you think that um, you, you'd encourage younger coaches to sort of build those relationships now and learn from your mistakes? Yeah, I, most definitely. I, I think um, you know it's interesting that you know you get the old school and the new school, and I kind of feel like I'm a little bit of that old school with a good new school blend in it, you know, a, a little bit. But I made a mistake in the beginning and thought the athletes. They wanted to, They wanted to, the assurance that I knew what the hell I was doing before I asked them on that. And at the end of the day, they didn't. And we always hear this phrase, athletes don't care what you know. They want to know what you care. Well, they can't, you got to take that a step further. It can't be just that they know that you care. They have to experience you yeah. and experience that you care for them in such a way. So, um, and I've always tried to lead, lead that way with, with my athletes. All right, what do you think is the most significant event in the history of the human race? Significant event in the human race? Probably science. Yeah, um, explain then why you think it's science. Well, I mean, you look at the quality of life we've been able to have. I mean, I associate science with technology. And, and, yep. uh, and, and in fact, we're we're in a world of science, right? And what we do every day, we're, you know, we're in the world of human physiology and trying to create the, 
the best environment for adaptation. So, um, and what we've been able to, to create and generate through that human spirit, that, that quest of more and the new frontier, the whole thing. Like I think uh, science really is, a uh, is probably, probably one of the greatest, greatest things that we've been able to do as a, as a human race to be able to develop and cultivate and, and create the, the lives that we aspire for ourselves and each other. So I think, I think we're at a really perverse level of that right now as a, as a, as a, as a world, especially in the States, I can say that like you think about, gosh, what I have now versus what my parents had and their parents had and oh, absolutely. what my kids are going to have. It's uh Holy cow. So yeah, it's uh, like maybe you said, a little bit, a uh, little bit perverse of where we're at right now. I think, uh, they're Man. doing repairs on your house via YouTube. So Yeah, right. Uh, yeah, <laughs> well, they never had that when I was growing up. So No, not at all. You know, you had to kind of figure things out. And that was it too. I mean, you had to call people up and you, you had to form relationships. And maybe back to your original question too, that, that's one thing for the young coaches is, you know, developing those relationships. You have information. Information is almost a commodity now, right? You can get it anywhere at any time, at any place. Um, but that information is only as good as the relationship that you form uh, with the with the people that you want to administer it with, right? You, you want to be able to deliver and provide it for, because if you just if you're just delivering information, then and it, again that's very systemic, right? There, there's there's nothing in there. Uh, there's no emotional tie at all. And we can, none of us can make even buying decisions without uh, without some sort of an emotional attachment to something. Absolutely. It comes back to as well too about developing those relationships with people. If everything is available online and it's you know easy, it's on hand, it's on the phone, that and the information they can get readily access. Well, they don't need to, you know, go and see the you know gym down the road and asking for some assistance and you know those issues are gonna just manifest in other issues down the later down the line. No doubt. Just when you go back to talking that, you know, you have issues building relationships with your old coaches. Mm-hmm. And that's something they need to be aware of when they're doing those sorts of things. No doubt. I think, yeah, that's probably maybe one of the biggest compliments I've gotten over my years um, from, from, you know, you always wonder, like even back when I was a graduate assistant, man, it was, gosh, you're like, man, the program I was doing with those kids, holy crap, I should probably be thrown into jail. If you, mm-hmm. you look back at that stuff now, right. And you were learning, you were evolving, but I had a privilege maybe about five years ago, I was at a conference and I saw a young man and I'm like, like that's Chad Stoloff. That's a kid that I trained at Nevada. He's a tennis player. And I'm like, Hey, Chad, he's like coach Buley. And it was the first thing out of his mouth. He's like, man, I'm so glad I got to see you, blah, blah, blah. And he was like, you know, he's like, I've always wanted to tell you, you were, you were my hands down, my favorite coach of all time. And I'm like, Oh, well, thank you. He, and he's like, no, I'm serious. He goes, you every day, He's like, when I came into the weight room, you made me feel like I was a Heisman Trophy winner and all I was was a tennis player, right? And uh, he goes, I always appreciated that about you. And I didn't always experience that from other coaches and even through my career. And he's like, and he was actually a head tennis coach at the time. And he was like, that's what I try to provide for my kids now based on that. You know, you get you get those assurances later on in life. I think some of the times when you do stuff, uh, it, it's some years later that you you get that confirmation that you're on the right path. Well, I know one of the things I did find was I found a, an old hard drive talking about technology with some old programs when I first started and I actually thought, you know what, I'm going to start doing some of these programs. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> what the hell was I thinking? Yeah. <laughs> but again, yeah. it's like 
you just go, oh, wow, what are we doing this anymore? But like, you know, you can actually see how you've progressed over the time and your, 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 your thought process has changed and, you know, oh, we're going to do all this stuff because it's mm-hmm. what the research is saying. And yeah, nah. Oh, it's, yeah. It's real life now. Let's, let's ignore yeah. that. <laughs> we won't well, be going I, back that way. I think, you know, I just had this conversation with a coach the other day and it was like, what was the, what was something you would do different or how would you go about your programming different? And I, you know, in the beginning, I thought, you know, what's the number one KPI we're shooting for? Strength. Like we wanted to get guys strong and strong as possible. And I think there's a, there's value in that. There most certainly is. Uh, but I think sometimes that strength came at the expense of what I call uh, sporting strength, being it like, and, and by that meaning, if you jump the highest and that somehow translates to your sport, then the best, the people with the highest vertical leap should be leading every league in rebound. But it's not the case. And the strongest athlete should always come off the field victorious. And that's not always the case. And uh, so I think it's important. And obviously, we borrow a lot from powerlifting and bodybuilding and Olympic lifting and even some CrossFit, too, if you even want to say say that, dare say that. Uh, but those are all those are sports in themselves and they're all predicated on what? How much could you lift? How much yeah. could you do? And um, I think I would have probably spent more time uh, developing really their sports skill and their reactive skills uh, at the expense of maybe doing some of the training that, that we did. Would you rather be a worried genius or a joyful idiot? Well, can you say neither? I think, uh, yeah, I mean, a joyful, uh, a joyful idiot. I, I always say ignorance is bliss, you know, but uh, I, I don't know that uh, I would want to walk around blind in, in total ignorance. And, uh, and uh, a worried genius, uh, that that to me reminds me, that phrase reminds me of, is it better to be perfect and on time or perfect and late or good and on time is one of the questions I would always yeah. ask my interns, right? And to me, is it's okay just to be good and on time because you're never going to be perfect and I'm certainly never going to be a genius. So, uh, yeah, I, 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 think I, it's, I think it's about trying to find a balance. Yeah, when, I think no question. That, you, you mentioned that you know as soon as the weekend hits, you're off on the boat and you're off with. I mean, that's probably the where you want to be that that joyful idiot because hey, you've got no problems in the world. You're on the boat there with the family and you're you're yeah. fishing or you you know you're on the little tubes. So that's probably where that balance comes in. I think it's and that's important, especially in you know high stress environments. You want to be able to switch off at some point and have that balance between you know the worried genius and the you know the joyful idiot or the you know able to switch off. Yeah, it's a challenge when you work from home. It really is because you're 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 in the your work within the environment that you have the stress and the work, and then you know you're just so. I try to stay out of this room that I'm in now uh, during the yeah. day, and I only reserve this room for work. Uh, I've got a TV behind me, but uh, uh, I just you know I just try try to turn those things off as much as possible. It was funny when I worked at Georgia Tech. You know, I'm only a half a mile from, from campus. We live right in downtown Atlanta. And so I would come through the door sometimes. My wife would be like, hey, you need to take off the coaching hat. I'm your wife. Because, you know, it was like, you know, you're still kind of like, ah. A little revved you know, up. Yeah, yeah you still kind of got all this angst and stuff like that. So uh, so she, you know, she uh, would consistently remind me of making sure I took my coach hat off when I'm at home. But it's it's a challenge when you're at home to be able to turn that off and step away and, uh, and uh 
more so than when I was coaching. It was like coaching, you go to work, you did it, you came home. It was like, there is no way room around you. You know, you just, yeah. you're here. So yeah, that, that, that has been a challenge. Yep, so, yeah, but you're doing the right thing. I think so having a room to yourself, like you can see, I'm in the office here, same here, that, you know, you turn it off once you leave here, everything stays in here, close the door, that's it, it's done, put it to the side, mm-hmm. move on. Yeah. So I think you're on the right track with that. Cool. All right. If you were forced to eliminate every physical possession from your life, except for what you could fit in a single backpack, what would you put in that backpack? Well, based on my current job, I damn sure have my computer, <laughs> my laptop. I could I couldn't make a living without it right now. I can now I can work from anywhere in the world, but I would need that laptop. So that's probably uh, that would be the number one possession. In fact, man, even when I take it with me. I even take it with me on the boat sometimes uh, if just in the chance that something happens and I've got to be able to have access to it, it's, it's quickly being able to pull it out, hot spot, fix it, and you put done. it away and you're done, right? Just yep. uh, sometimes that just having it there uh, relieves well, some angst. Uh, well, that, that still leaves room in your backpack. I can't let you get away with just a laptop. It still leaves room. Yeah, uh, definitely would take uh, my laptop. Obviously, I have to have my phone from a hot spot. Uh, I would definitely have a picture of my family and you know, something that I could uh, keep it. You know, you obviously got your back, I guess you got your laptop uh, screen. You could do that. Um, yeah, man, that's some pen and paper. <laughs> that's about it. I, I'd, uh, you know, pretty simple, maybe a collapsible fishing rod. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Throw that rascal out and catch uh, catch on that. So yeah, uh, that, uh, That'd probably be it. Yeah. All right. If you could take a single photograph of your life, what would it look like? A blur. <laughs> <laughs> Out of focus? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I, I don't know what the picture would look like, but um, I, think, uh, I think I heard a quote. It said, uh, on your tombstone, it's, you got your when you were born and when you died. Right. Yeah. You're responsible for what happened in between the the dash is the most important thing. So like, you know, I, I think, uh, I remember early in my career, I, I, I had gone to a funeral of a friend and that this person had experienced so many things actually left a six figure job just to say, you know what, I'm going to go explore and see the world because tomorrow's never guaranteed. And he ended up dying. Uh, came, very tragic came in to walk between two cars during an armed robbery and was killed and shot killed and i didn't know this guy and i started making me think about like holy cow i've been grinding for seven years i haven't even taken a vacation uh this is before i was married i'm like you know what i need to make sure i'm giving myself some time and doing those things and uh so you know that's important not to forget what you know what you yeah do. i mean in your, in your work should never define you i think that that is Sometimes I see that a lot in this profession where a lot of coaches, this is because it is consuming. You can let it consume you so much that it, and the fact that it, it almost defines who you are. And uh, I said, I'm never going to, this is, this isn't define who I am. This is just something I do. Fair enough. If you could create a, or if you could have credit for creating any piece of art, painting, music, or so- song, what would you have credit for and what would it be? And I like all music. I love art. I used to draw 
and uh, sketched and painted and all that stuff. I'd bring it to my dad. He's like, that ain't going to pay the bills, son. He goes, good job, but that ain't going to pay the bills. So. <laughs> uh, man, I don't know. That's a, that's a, that's a good one. Um, yeah. Shoot. You got me stumped on that one, Nick. I've got two from two. I've got you stumped on. <laughs> yeah. You got me stumped on that. Those are, those are deep, man. Uh, um, are you afraid to bring your true self around each other? Like, do you wear your heart on your sleeve or do you always have something in reserve? Like if you're walking into a room that you don't really know people, would they get the Mike Buley, the original Mike Buley, or do you think you'd probably wear a bit of a mask to start with and sort of suss the room out? Um, I think it's a good blend of both. I'm like, you know, obviously a little bit, a little bit guarded in, in some way when you come into the, to the room and into the environment, I think it depends on the situation too. You know, if I'm in a generally when I go into a room full of strangers and I don't really know anything about them, for instance, if my wife says we're going to go to a barbecue with some people that she's friends with because our kids go to school together with their kids, yep. I know nothing about these people. So I, I just try to go in there and ask them to tell me everything about them and just try to make them like, you know, feel at ease. Right. Uh, exactly. just tell, tell me about you. And then, uh, yeah, but if I was to go to a conference man, you're going to get all of me. You're going to get who I am, what I am. Uh, they're your people. They, yeah. They're my people. Right. And, you know, people tell me all the time, like, I'm just shocked. Like uh, I saw you in line for food and I was asked you a question and you literally stepped out of line and started talking to me about, you know, this and that. And you took all this time. He's like, I just really meant the world to me. And it was like, Holy crap. I'm talking to coach Buley. I'm like, yeah, well I, I put on my pants the same way as you brother. So don't, don't, uh, you know, no need to, uh, hold me in that high of regard. So, uh, yeah. So I, yeah, I think it's just situational. Uh, I wouldn't say I come in as try to be the life of the party by anything, but, uh, but when I come in and just given that situation, uh, yeah, I try to, I think by feeling other people out, it probably puts me a little bit more at ease yep. and, and understanding and, uh, and it's good. I mean, I'm not one to like to talk about myself, but, a lot of people generally do. So if you just kind of get to know them a little bit more, they'll tell you more and more and more. And then eventually they'll ask you to, but you know, it's just good banter. I think that way. Coming back that way. All right. Tell, what are you not very good at? What's something that you're not very good at? Man, not, <laughs> some days I feel like I'm not a very good parent. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's I no mean, manual that comes there, with There's no manual. instruction manual. I mean, <laughs> I mean, we got a dog, uh, prior to having kids and we didn't kill that. So we thought that that was going to be enough rite of passage for us <laughs> to have children. Uh, yeah. And then, you know, trying to be a good husband. Um, yeah, not, not very good at, I would probably say patience is probably my worst virtue. Uh, I've got, a, I've got a, 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 I have patience. that's a mile wide and an inch deep. And, uh, <laughs> And, uh, yeah, and it's gotten better as I've gotten older, but I pray to God every day to give me patience and I tell him to hurry up. <laughs> and, uh, so it's, uh, yeah, it's probably one of my, one of my, it's funny. And my, and I, my daughter is, you know, I'm like, Hey, be patient. And my parents are over there cracking up. They're like, yeah, that, that you That's telling her to be patient is like the pot calling the kettle black. So. <laughs> Fair enough. You know, patience is always a virtue as they say. Yeah. Yeah, I, I kind of, I'm kind of one of those guys that want it now, and uh, and uh, you know, let's go, let's go, let's go, and it's a slow roast. It's a slow roast. All right, who would be in your ultimate punters club? 
So basically, ultimate punters club. So here for us in Australia, that would be you know a group of knockabout people, larrikins. You can go and have a beer with. You can have a bet. It's more about the social interactions. And this is not. You can have movie stars. You can have rock stars. You can have whoever you yeah. want. This is your ultimate punters club. Looking about three or four people in the group. Yeah. Who would they be? Uh, well, I'd have to put. Uh, I'm actually going to visit one of them, and another one's coming in town. So we're all going to get together. It's. Uh, a uh, good friend of mine. Both of them we coached together at Georgia Southern. So it's uh, Brent Davis and uh, Doug Giacconi. Uh, and uh, those guys are the best. Obviously, Gary Schofield would be would be in that. It's, I've knew, known Gary since 2012. and uh, But, man, we just hit it off. Like him and I just clicked really, really strongly together. Um, and another person that would probably be in uh, – a real strong wheelhouse would be uh, Jeremy Boone. Um, yep. Met, met Jeremy. Uh, a lot of people think he's a leadership guy, but, man, he's a tremendous coach. I mean, incredible uh, coach. And, uh, yeah, I, I actually met – I knew Jeremy since 2009, but I brought Jeremy in to actually audit me. Uh, every two years I would bring somebody in from outside who dealt with leadership. And I would have them audit me, audit my staff, audit my players, audit my coaches and say, is what Mike's professing downstairs in alignment with what he's, what he's, is his actions aligned with that, you know? Yep. And that, I always thought that was, you know, I always ask my athletes to be comfortable being uncomfortable and who am I answering to? Uh, so I always did that. Uh, but that's how Jeremy and I linked up and, and uh, was, uh, that was a, that was a start to a really, even a, a really strong relationship there. And then probably, um, man, I probably, I probably have to throw in there, uh, our athletic trainer that was at, uh, university of Dayton, him and I were such great friends. Um, in fact, he's the one that met, introduced me to my wife and, uh, him and I hit it off. He was a former wrestler at uh, university of Dayton turned athletic trainer and, uh, yeah, so yeah, that's kind of my. I would say that's probably my really, really strong entourage. Those are my guys. Like I could call them up in the middle of the night, and say I'm here, I need you, and they'd be like, "Okay, I'm there." Beautiful. That's that's what we're looking for. All right, what's your best motivational pump-up song? Oh, uh, you said you like probably ACDC "Back in Black." Yeah. Back in Black. Oh, one of the old favorites. That's a stop standing yeah. one, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's a that's a time honored classic right there. Now, is there any question that I haven't asked you yet that you think I should ask you? No, man. You you threw some stuff. You threw some curveballs at me today. These were good. These were. Told you it was going to be a little bit different. Yeah, right, la- I like good format. Last question: Why do you refuse second best? <laughs> uh, why do I refuse second best, or what is uh Now, why do you refuse second best? Um. Well, the thing about being the best is refusing second best. Right. Right. So obviously you can't, you do that. You can't, I guess you can't give the definition with the, the actual word. So I think I just did that. But uh, I think if you align yourself with the expectation of being the very, very best in what you do. And um, I think that kind of goes back. We talked about that in the beginning. That was kind of ingrained with, with me that you want to surround yourself with people with that same kind of like-mindedness and when you put that kind of level of effort behind something and making sure that it is the best, 
You want to be around people that can recognize that, that appreciate that. And that's not for everybody. And just like hard work isn't for everybody and persistence isn't for everybody. And I think it takes a lot of courage to have that level of persistence and that, and, and that level of uh, that work ethic in order to get the, the desired outcome. Right. And so, uh, and you have to do that with the least amount of risk too. Right. And, and which is a little bit of leadership and in, in intertwined with all of that. So that's, that's why I refuse second best. And, you know, I used to tell my athletes, I said, listen, you know, some people give them rules and expectations of what they have, but I would always say, I would always follow that up with here are my, here's what you're going to get from me every day. And this is how you're going to experience me every day. And if you don't, you need to come to me and let me know. Because, and that's why I audited myself. I wanted to make sure that I would be able to deliver that. And sometimes my athletes would overvalue authority so they wouldn't be truthful to me, but they would be truthful to a complete stranger that said, what do you think about Coach Buley? Uh, And uh, no, that's... Well, that's just holding yourself to a high standard as well. Correct, right, exactly. Your standards that you're setting. Correct, absolutely. And if you don't don't aspire to that, then I think uh, then what I'm going to be able to provide for you is... is, uh, is not is going to be undervalued, and uh, yeah, that's why. And what would be the best way for people to reach out to you? Um, the best way to reach out to me, uh, they could do that via email. Obviously, Play Academy would probably be the easiest way to get a hold of me. Uh, you just get in there on the social network, and you could follow me, message me, reach out to me there that way. Uh, be glad to uh, to talk to anybody. And, uh, talk shop, learn, exchange ideas. Yeah, I'm open book to all that. Uh, mate, I'd like to thank you for your time. I know it's uh, you know, digging into your evening over there, so it's nice and early yeah, over here. Man. But uh, thanks for your time, and um, we're going to wrap that up there. And um, we'll no doubt we'll talk again soon. Thank you, cool, man. Thanks, Mick. I appreciate it, buddy. Thank you so much for listening to the Kinetic Collective podcast powered by Play. If you are looking to take your weight room or training facility to the next level, you can't go past Play. Play provides turnkey solutions from the ground up for any project, whether it's your team's weight room or a state-of-the-art training facility. For more information, please visit play.global. If you've enjoyed listening, please give us a follow and ring the bell to get a notification for when we post next.